Deuteronomy 23. And then we'll turn also uh, to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe that's page uh, 933. Westminster Confession of Faith 933 and also to Deuteronomy 23. We're finishing up our chapter on lawful oaths and vows. Deuteronomy 23. First. It says there in Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed, voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And then we'll look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22 of Lawful Oaths and Vows, sections 6 and 7. Speaking of vows, it is not to be made to any creature but to God alone and that it may be accepted and that it may be accepted it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received and for obtaining of what we want whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly uh, conduce thereunto. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power, and for performance thereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects popish monastic vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular uh, obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would help us to be free from the burdens of superstition and that we would receive that freedom that we have in Christ our Lord. We thank you that you have uh, given us a holy faith but also a a balanced faith that is founded not upon just um, the New Testament but upon the riches of what we find in the Old Testament as well. And as we study this um, call for us, this even command for us to take lawful vows unto you, we do pray that you would help us to keep our vows and to even endeavor, we pray, to hold even fast, even to a greater degree of the vows of church membership that we have taken before you and many witnesses. But we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Deuteronomy uh, 23, uh, 21, as we had just read, talks about 
the importance of taking a vow. And section six opens by saying, it, that is a vow, is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone. Perhaps that's where we have a big distinction between a vow and a promissory oath. If it's a promissory oath, it could be made to someone. But here, the vow is something that we make unto God. So when you're in church and you're making a membership vow, that's something that we're doing before God and witnesses, but we're not a person who's taken the vow before the church. He's, he's not vowing to the congregation, but he's vowing to God to be faithful to him as a member of the congregation. And that's what we, we have there. It's a solemn vow ultimately to God, and it's not really being made to the congregation. Um, now, if you might ask, why do we even have to make membership vows to God to become communicant members of the church uh, with rights to partake of the Lord's Supper? I believe that's part of fulfilling this passage in your outline there. In Matthew ten thirty-two, where to confess Christ before men. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I would also like to, uh, to, to go over something that's not in my notes, and I hope I get it correct. But the origin of the word uh, sacrament comes from the Latin of sacramentum, which was something that a person would take a vow of service as a soldier, or uh, maybe a centurion of some sort, uh, to serve the Roman army. It was They would take vows of service. And there's that notion in which when we have sacraments such as a baptism, a person who is an adult being baptized, they're making vows unto God. It's like a member, a person who's coming into the membership of the church is taking vows of faithfulness unto God, just like a soldier would um, make a vow of that sort. Um, that's another notion um, why we, we do that. Um, Psalm 76:11, also in your outline, says, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Now, maybe you, you thought of it before as that such a passage of Scripture is giving us a suggestion that it's optional. If you see fit, make a vow. But that's not what it's saying. It's, it's a passage here that's giving a command. It's commanding us to make certain vows to God. Now, now, somebody might say, well, I can just come to church and attend worship. I don't have to be a member. I can just hear the preaching. And, you know, I don't have to be a member. I can just sit under the preaching and be a Christian. Now, what are some of the motivations that would make someone want to make holy vows of membership before the Lord? In a, as another example of these holy vows. Section 6 talks about such motivations. These vows are to be made out of faith and conscience of duty in a way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want. Their conscience um, concerns them about a duty to serve the Lord and they want to be a church member so they could be a faithful uh, servant unto the Lord. Uh, they, they're thankful for what God has done for them in Christ. Therefore, out of thankfulness, they want to become a member um, now, one that we might need to explain a little bit more is 
for the obtaining of what we want. Um, here are some examples. Maybe you want to take the Lord's Supper. If you want to do things lawfully according to the Book of Church order, you don't just take the Lord's Supper. You have to take a vow uh, of membership first. So the rights to partake of the Lord's Supper. Maybe someone wants or desires um, to have a closer, a closer relationship with the church, um, the, to the congregation and to God, and that's the way that they're convicted to do it. They want to have accountability to the other brothers and sisters as a member of the church, and they want to have oversight of the session. Another one, not listed here, is they would, lo they would love to be able to have the rights and privileges of the service of deacons. And deacons ought to, I believe, serve those who are members first and foremost. It's not prohibited for them to help visitors, but if you're a member of the church, a long-standing member who's made mutual, who made vows to God on behalf of being a member, then that gives you better rights and privileges of service in the church, both to, from the elders and the deacons. So in a sense that there are certain things that we could obtain what we desire and why we would take membership vows. Section 6 <clears throat> goes on to say that it, a vow, may be Ex uh, that it may be accepted is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty. Um, there ha they have to have this conviction of a duty before God and it has to be a matter of faith in which they partake of taking this vow. And um, of course, um, G.O.I. Williamson goes on and talks a little bit about uh, the ways the Catholic Church has abused this, but he, he remarks uh, in his book on the Westminster Confession of Faith, how there have been abuses of this in the Protestant church as well. And he has a little quotation here. He says, Yet even among Protestants, a very serious form of this sin has become commonplace. It is a practice of encouraging people, often by psychological, emotional influence, on the spur of the moment to sign pledge cards. That's a card where you're making a vow before God of some sort. You're pledging something or making a vow. And perhaps you, you walked into the church to visit and you, weren't, you were thinking you were just going to hear a sermon and you were going to have a prayer uh, or you're going to sing and all that stuff. And, and here these cards are passed out and then you're being pressured to sign them and fill them out. And you're not really having time to think about it. It's, it's being... I, I think it can be an, a notion of psychological, emotional influence, to, like it says, in the spur of the moment, where people don't have time to think really about what they're really signing and pledging. Um, and he goes on to say that this is especially something that younger children um, may not have the wherewithal to understand the weightiness of the matter. This whole chapter talks about not taking a vow rashly, evaluating even one's ability to perform it. Someone would likely perform the vow before even understanding what's involved. Um, I wouldn't call it necessarily a vow, but one of the things that turned me away from the, the Pentecostal, well, not Pentecostal, the uh, Assemblies of God, was that we were at a, this huge uh, hotel conference room gathered by ministers probably from most of the state of Louisiana. 
And this one special speaker who came, who flew in from some other part of the country, who actually visited the Holy Land and was trying to raise money for the Holy Land, he, um, he basically prophesied that six people in the crowd were going to give each a uh, maybe $10,000, I think it was something like that. Six people were going to each give $10,000. And he said, even if you're not able to give it, but you maybe have to trust the Lord that you're going to be able to give it, we want you to pledge, or maybe perhaps even vow to God that you're going to give it and come stand up here. One of the ladies who came up and stood in the front had a mental condition and was living on Social Security and had not even $100 to donate. But she got up there and was vowing to the Lord that she was going to give this $10,000. That was a big turnoff for me to want to be part of that Assemblies of God. Um, I visited another Protestant church uh, near New Orleans where the, uh, the, the minister was praying a really long prayer, a, a congregational prayer. And in the middle of the prayer, he converts the prayer into the whole congregation, making a vow unto the Lord never, ever to touch alcohol uh, in any respect whatsoever. And I kind of just opened my eyes and stopped praying. I'm like, I wasn't, I'm not going to amen to this because what in the world is this? I, this is a pastoral prayer converted into a vow regarding extra biblical requirements. It's not found in Holy Scripture. That's a... Uh, I would say that was a rather spur-of-the-moment kind of influence thing. Uh, you know, you, you're expecting to be praying a prayer with the pastor, and then all of a sudden you, you, he's calling you to vow unto the Lord something that is um, extra-biblical, outside of Scripture. Section 6 goes on to say that a vow is something where we, strict, we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties. Now... Let's talk about worship. Worship is a necessary duty. God requires worship of all men, women, and children throughout all of creation. They're already required to worship God by the nature of the fact that He is their creator. And as their creator, He commands them to worship Him. It's not just them committing adultery or sexual immorality or lying or stealing that's going to send them to hell. What's going to condemn people to hell is the fact that God commands every human being upon the face of the earth to worship Him. You shall have no other gods before me. You are to worship Him and Him alone. And if, you, you, and if people decide that they want to stay home and watch television rather than worship the God of, who created them, then they basically made a decision to put themselves first, God second. They're having another God before him. Um, now, so you could say that worship is already a necessary duty. To refuse to worship God, again, is to break, you could say, to break the first four commandments, really. Worship of God is already a necessary duty. However... When you have a vow before God and witnesses in the church, it says that you are more strictly bound to the necessary duties. It's not that you should just feel more obligated, because you should, if you vowed a vow of church membership. You don't just feel more obligated, you are more obligated. Because you already have it as a necessary obligation according to creation, to worship God. 
but you've already you've made a solemn promise to God that you will be a faithful member of the church, and yet, therefore there's a, a binding vow as well. Let's look again at that Deuteronomy uh, 23:21 passage. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you, as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to take membership vows before the church. It's a, it's a serious thing for even for a minister or an elder or a deacon to take vows of ordination. Promised to God, and therefore we have to keep those vows. Section 7 <clears throat> says, No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which it is not in his power, and uh, for the performance of, whereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects popish monastic vows of perpetual single life. That's the first one he mentions. Now, I want us to look at a rather difficult passage, but an important passage in Matthew 19 that speaks to celibacy. Now, when Jesus talks about celibacy here, in Matthew 19, he, um, he's actually talking about those who have made themselves, um, he calls it being made eunuchs. Now, we don't know absolutely for sure if they were physically made eunuchs or if they lived as eunuchs. But let's look at this. Um, let's look at verse, uh, might as well look at the whole chapter, starting at verse, uh, starting from verse 1 up through 12. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He answered and said, You have not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let no man separate and they said to him why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away he said to them because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples uh, said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, 
Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, I think he's talking about what's going to follow in, 12, in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who, were made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, the beginning of verse 11, he says, Not all men can accept this. Not all men can accept this. It's not a requirement of service to God that you must be living as a eunuch or that even one would have to be made a eunuch. Not all can accept this. Let's look at another uh, passage. Um, we want to turn as well to 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, starting at verse um, 1. Now, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this man and one in that. He's talking about his ability to withhold from being married. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they refrain, even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Herein, he's saying that if a person maybe doesn't have the, the self-control and they have a desire for intimacy, God wants them to marry. That's clearly what is said here. So, what is the problem, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, is there are people, and I actually have close friends who've been to seminary, who've had desires for marriage, and were told, it's not what you want, it's what God wants. Deny that desire. Suppress that desire. And the problem with that is that they can't. They are, they are unable, and really, they are pressured by someone who tells them that this is the path of being a holy man of God. Something not required in Holy Scripture, something outside of Scripture that Paul, neither Paul nor Jesus, required of them. Now, we're going to look at one more section here. Um, let's look at 
26 of the same chapter. Herein Paul says, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you, re are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Okay. Why is he saying that? Um, I've heard uh, Dr. J. Adams' remark on this is that the reason historically is that men were being put on pitch uh, on pikes, um, like spears. Christians who were being persecuted were by Nero and others were being impaled and burned alive. In that present distress of persecution, because of that persecution, that's why he said, because of the present distress, it's best not to marry. That's not, this is, needs to be taken in, in the historical context here, in this particular passage. Not someone saying, oh, because of the present distress of our culture around us, it's good for us not to marry. That would be a, a, a really terribly wrong interpretation of this uh, section here. Uh, section 7 goes on to say, uh, again, in, <coughs> in which respects popish monastic vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. It's superstitious and it's sinful to think that you can have a higher degree of perfection than what God requires, according to his word. There are people who come up with this stuff and believe that it's it's a greater level of holiness to come up to, to live a certain life that even the Word of God does not demand of you. I've heard a pastor say it this way. They think, not only do they think, but they teach others that they need to be holier than Jesus, in a sense, which of course is impossible and preposterous. It's superstitious and arrogant. Some people want you to take a vow never to ever, ever touch a Another drop of alcohol when even our Lord Jesus drank wine with his disciples. Um, that would be uh, is something that there's someone's being pressured to be, uh, they think they could be holier than Jesus in that regard. Now, if someone has a problem or if their family history, there's a problem, yes. If the hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If for yourself you have a problem, if the hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't go near it. Don't buy it. Don't go in the pub, don't go in a bar, don't hang around with the friends that are going to influence you. you got to cut off those things. But what I love about the Reformed faith is that when God tells us what to do and how to live, we don't have to live to please everyone else, especially those who have extra biblical requirements. Jesus does not want to entangle us with superstition. I, I love this blessed passage in in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says here, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Jesus gives us what is the yoke of a Christian. That yoke is something that was placed upon an ox as he had to pull that, had to pull that uh, plow and plow the field. There is a, a degree of having a yoke, but it is the law of God which, in which we are not only enabled more and more as Christians to be able to obey, because sin shall not have dominion over you, but even the fact that we sin daily, the penalty of sin has been done away with through Jesus Christ. Yes, we will sin, but Jesus says, and the Holy Scripture says, and uh, Paul, oh, actually Paul in Romans 6, uh, 14 um, and following, says that sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit given unto you to help you. The burden that Christ has laid upon you is not a heavy burden. It is light. Don't let someone else lay a burden that you cannot bear that is outside of Holy Scripture. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for um, this portion of Holy Scripture, these portions of Holy Scripture which we have studied. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave to those, um, those gospel ministers who uh, gave us uh, the, the confession of faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to be those who keep our word, who make oaths, knowing that you are the one in authority who is our witness and judge in the matter. We pray that you would help us to bear the truth. We pray, O oh Father, that you would help us to remember the vows that we have made, especially, we pray, as members of your church. We pray that you would help us by your word and spirit to grow in faithfulness in fulfilling these holy vows that we made as an act of worship before you, the King of glory. Bless, we pray, uh, your people with understanding. Bless your people with your Holy Spirit to stir them up to love and to good deeds. For we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, um, him, we're going to close with hymn 193. Uh, baptized into your name most holy. Um, Denise, play this one through once.